I've been mentioning for a few weeks we're in this series in the book of John. We're kind of just starting it, even though we're in the middle of the book. And today we're going to look at John 11, those verses that Kevin just read. And uh, what we've kind of tried to do is be able to preach the resurrection from the book of John when we get to Easter Sunday in April. And so backing out the timeline, we kind of needed to start here at, the, uh, at chapter 11 where Lazarus was raised. So last week, we kind of tried to do 10 chapters, uh, the whole first part of the book of John. And we even talk about how uh, the, from, from chapter 1 through... Uh, um, this whole first part is the first half of the book in the book of signs and what was John's purpose in it. And then once we get to about chapter 13, there's going to be a shift and that'll be the second part of the book and we'll see uh, the, the, just really some of the final days of Christ's life. The final 48 hours will encompass a, 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 a few months of our preaching here as we go through this book together. So we talked last week in terms of well, what was John's purpose as he was writing the book and he sets out these signs. We're in these first chapters that's called the book of signs and this account in John chapter 11 is kind of the final one in that numbering before you actually get to Christ, his own death and resurrection. And John was trying to tie certain things together. He wanted us to catch the identity of who Christ was. In fact, his purpose statement for the whole book, he tells us in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John had this purpose that he wanted to convince people that the most important person in all of human history really was this Jesus from Nazareth, really was Jesus Christ the Messiah. He was truly God's son, the one who came to bring salvation and life and forgiveness. And John wanted to record all of these instances and all of these miracles that would tie back to many of the Old Testament promises they knew and were waiting for in a Messiah. And all of them would be pointing forward. They would be witnessing that this, this really is Christ. This really is the Messiah. Do you get it? Do you see who he is? Do you see his power? And so as John puts these together, there's kind of like this increasing magnitude of the miracles and the, the, uh, the, uh, where he starts out healing, uh, healing a sick child. And then, and then he heals a cripple who's been crippled for 38 years. And then he heals a man who's been born blind from birth. And now we get to Lazarus, which will be a resurrection from the dead. This is the biggest miracle to date in John's recorded gospel. And also along the way, there's been this escalating controversy. You see, the things that Jesus is doing, not everybody likes it. It's causing some to have faith. His disciples are getting the picture of who he is, and there's this increasing crowd of popularity, but the religious leaders are being threatened, and they're beginning to be at odds with Christ. And all, um, you see that escalation, that conflict escalating, and it's going to kind of come to a peak here. So this this isn't the first time in Jesus' ministry that he has raised someone from the dead. Uh, you see uh, a few times where there's three recorded instances of Jesus raising someone from the dead. And, uh, you've got the raising of Jairus' daughter that takes place in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And you've got the raising of the widow's son at Nain. Uh, that, that, that takes place in Luke. But in John's, this is the, the, the only recorded instance of someone being raised from the dead. And in some ways, you would call it more significant than the others. Whereas the other 
others are probably smaller in scope and were more recently deceased. Here, Lazarus is going to have been in the tomb for four days. So Andreas Kostenberger, writing on this, says, of the three raisings of the dead listed uh, in what I read above, that of Lazarus is clearly the most spectacular. Both of the other raisings rate as on a smaller scale, and when compared with the extensive account of the raising of Lazarus provided by John, appear to be of a much more private and personal nature than the highly public dimension attached to the raising of Lazarus. This is somewhat the, this will be the crowning achievement of the signs of Jesus' life and ministry until we see his own death and resurrection. And it even foreshadows his own death and resurrection. It's the culmination of the conflict between the scribes and Pharisees. So we're closing this first half of the book kind of at the pinnacle. And you'll see then why we get into the events of the Passion Week and the final hours of Christ's life. And you'll see what it is that is taking place. So let's jump into the text and we'll try to move through this quickly as we get to the communion table. So let me start in 11 verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was ill. So John wants us to just set the stage and see what's taking place here with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And there's apparently some knowledge that the people he's writing to, they would have understood who Mary and Martha were because he, he says, he points out that it was Mary who wiped uh, who anointed Christ and wiped his feet with her hair, which is an account that he's not going to narrate till the next chapter. So they probably already knew who this was, and he's tithing, you know about Mary and Martha. Well, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, and he was ill. And look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now that's kind of an interesting response from Jesus. It won't be the first interesting response that you see in this account. But, but Jesus uh, hears the account. A messenger is sent. And he said, this illness does not lead to death. Well, we're going to read in a few verses that Lazarus died. So what is Jesus' point? His point is that the illness of Lazarus is not going to ultimately end in death. In fact, there's a reason this is taking place. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In fact, this is a little bit similar to a few chapters earlier in chapter 9 where Jesus heals the blind man and there's questions of, of who's responsible for this man's blindness. Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says neither. It's so that the works of God might be on display, right? So that God would get the glory in this miracle. And it's somewhat similar that Jesus is saying, yes Lazarus is ill, but it won't ultimately end in death. What it's going to end in is God being glorified. And he wants not only only Mary and Martha and Lazarus to see it, but his disciples and many people in the village to see this truth. So look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I appreciated the way Kevin read that, even with his inflection. Like there's a shock there, right? He says, uh, now, now Jesus loved Mary and Martha Lazarus. Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So he waited. He didn't go to them. He didn't run to them, right? There's a confusing thought there, right? I would have expected it to say, Jesus loved them so much that he dropped everything and he raced 
to get to them, right? Isn't that what you would have expected it to say? Uh, and it's not what the text says. Uh, uh, some of your translations might even try to resolve that tension by saying uh, he loved them and yet when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days. But it's really not the best use of the text there. This is supposed to say exactly what it says, that because he loved them, he stayed. That makes no sense. I, I mean, if one of you were uh, to have a life crisis and you reach out to a friend and say, I know you love me, but you can take two days to delay. Usually we call our friends and we say, help immediately. And they show that love by responding immediately. Jesus responds by delaying. Why? What is taking place here, right? So Jesus is uh, a, a, a distance away. It takes a while for the message to get to him. Even if he had responded immediately and traveled the few days' journey to get there, he would not have gotten there before Lazarus died. He probably could have gotten in there within just a couple of days of Lazarus' death. But if you look at verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, there was this concept that Jews would have been familiar of, or uh, I don't think superstition is the right word, but like there was some rabbinic teaching and some would have thought that after death, the spirit hung around for up to three days, seeing if there was a way to re-enter the body. But once the body started to decompose after four days, final. Death was absolutely final. There was no way that was going to be reversed. And so in some senses, whether or not that was universally understood truth, but you can see how if someone died and was just only dead for a couple of hours and was raised to new life, there might be some that, skeptics that would say, well, that, it, that wasn't a miracle. Uh, they would wrongly conclude that, right? But they might have an accusation and an argument that, well, that person wasn't really dead. Uh, they were just sleeping and we didn't know it or something like this. And Jesus wanted to make positively certain, 100% sure, that everyone knew who he was and the glory that this sign pointed to. So, because he loved Mary and Martha and he didn't just want Lazarus raised from the dead, he wanted them to see his identity because he loved them, he stayed, and he waited, and he allowed them to do, endure that grief and suffering and go through the death process. Why? Because he loved them. Because they would then understand and see who he was. So as we go through this as a people, I think there's some application for us just to think of it this way. As we go through life, there are things that don't make sense or we see God delay what we would think would be our plans. And so we could say it this way, that in God's sovereign plans, delayed plans are not derailed plans, right? In God's sovereign power, delayed plans are not derailed plans. And, and, and we need to catch and understand that fact because it doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, if you glance down in the narrative, if you look at verse 21, what are the first words that Martha says? Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Look at the very first thing that Mary says in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we try to read all kinds of intent. Is this a rebuke? Is this an accusation? What is it? And the truth is we don't necessarily know the intent behind it. We'll look at it in just a second. But, 
But part of the point is, there's this thought of, well, God, my plans were for you to have been here, right? My plans were for you to have showed up. And, and, and why didn't it happen that way? But look exactly why it happened. Why did it happen? Because God loved them, right? Because God wanted them to see his glory and he wanted them to see the absolute power that he had over death. He didn't just want to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wanted them to see the power that he had over death. And so because he wanted them to catch his identity, he was willing to delay. And we catch that and realize that, that God in his love worked exactly the way he worked, not because he didn't love them, but because he did love them and allowed them to go through that just to bring that about. Oswald Oswald Chambers said it this way, sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark because we are too short-sighted to see what he's aiming for. Isn't that the truth? Sometimes it seems like God is missing the mark because we are too short-sighted to see what he's aiming for. <clears throat> this side of glory, we may never, ever understand God's plans. It's pretty cool that we get to look back and see a, a, a glimpse of what God was doing in the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But probably the majority of times, we won't see and have an explanation of what God is doing. <clears throat> Or we might see one or two things God is doing and we will miss the hundreds of other things that God is doing behind the scenes that we can never, we'll never see. And so we can have this bedrock confidence in who God is that even though his plans don't match ours, his are better and they are motivated by his love for his children. He wants his children to see how good he is, right? And, and so he's going to allow those things into our lives and uh, that ought to cause us joy. Uh, e even, uh, even though it was surprising and hard for Mary and Martha. So that's a pretty cool thing. Let's keep going in the text. So this kind of sets the stage of what was taking place. Now you've got to see there's a surprise for the disciples here as they realize what Jesus' plans are. And look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi... The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? So, what's taking place? Uh, remember, I, I, I said that Jesus was in a different area than where Mary and Martha were. Uh, if you look back to chapter 10, where Jesus was back in this area, and remember I talked about the escalating conflict, look at verse 31. So, well, well before I get to verse 31, Remember the story of the good shepherd that I briefly talked about last week? And there's this discourse where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And if you think of that in terms of these warm pastoral tones where Jesus was telling people, look, I'm the good shepherd. Come sit in the warm, comfortable green pastures. While that's all true, that was not Jesus' point. This was a scathing rebuke to the religious leaders. He's saying, he's saying you scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, the ones leading the people astray, you're thieves, you're robbers. You're stealing and destroying the sheep. And Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one that's come to bring life. And it escalates the controversy, right? They understand his point. He is pinning them to the wall and calling them out as false shepherds, as thieves, as robbers. And he's saying, I'm the good shepherd. And the story keeps going. Then you've got the Feast of Dedication in verse 22, and you get to verse 31. Then the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Come down to verse 39. Of, I'm in chapter 10. 
Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And so he has to physically remove himself from the area. It's too dangerous around Jerusalem. I mean, there's people ready to kill him. There's people ready to tie him up. There's people ready uh, to have his neck. And, and, and so he says, my friend Lazarus is sick. We're going to go back to, we're going to him. And his disciples say, are you out of your mind? That's what they're saying. They're ready to kill you. Why would you do that? And look at Jesus' response then in verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's Jesus saying? He's telling them, look, I, I'm, I'm walking in the light. There is not danger here in the way that you perceive danger. Yes, if you walk in the darkness, you will stumble and fall. Jesus is saying, I, I am in the will of my Father, and while that is taking place, no harm can come to me. What's the application for you and I? The application is that when we are within God's will and when we are living the way that he desires us to be, excuse me, when we are in the will of the Father, there is no safer place to be. Right. And that doesn't mean that hardship isn't going to come when we're within the will of the Father. In fact, this was going to be excruciatingly painful for Jesus, but he knew that it was his course to walk in the light, and that meant going back right into the face of danger because this was what God had for him that in the raising of Lazarus from the dead it would shed light on who he was and some would believe and some would have their hearts hardened and yet Jesus said this this is the time to walk in the day I, I'm in the light, and therefore we need to go. And so he says, my friend is asleep. We're going to go back and heal him. And some of the disciples are confused. Well, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. And so then he just has to very plainly tell him, uh, he's dead. Uh, but I'm, I'm going. I'm going back for, uh, for your sake. I'm glad I was not there, he actually says in verse 15, so that you may believe and let us go to him. And so Thomas says, all right, if this is, if this is a, a march into death, let's go with him, that we would die too. And so they're just along for the ride. They're, they're, you see their faith increasing, even though not all of it makes sense. And look at verse 17 then. Uh, so Jesus comes to Lazarus then. Um, comes to the village and you see uh, when he arrives he, founds out, he finds in verse 17 now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming she went and met him but Mary remained seated in the house. So Jesus shows up and he finds out that he's already been dead for four days and by this point the, uh, the grieving process was a, a, a uh, public type thing. At times you would hire mourners. There would be people to play musical instruments and weeping and wailing. So not only the grief of the family but then they would hire performers to help and whether or not that's what's taking place here or if they were a prominent enough family that some from Jerusalem traveled a little bit less than two miles to come and to share in that grief. Uh, and there were many people that were a part of this process and that were grieving. And then look what Jesus does. We're going we're gonna to look at how Jesus interacts with Martha this week and I think we'll stop here and look then at Jesus interaction with Mary next week 
But look what, look what Martha does in verse 21. Now, Jesus said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, so Martha's first words are, Lord, if, you know, if you would have been here, I, I know you could have changed something about this, right? He, my brother wouldn't have died. And uh, as I said, you know, we all wonder, well, what's behind these statements? Uh, is this accusation? Is this, uh, is even her statement that whatever you ask from God a sign of faith? Um, I don't know that it is because you see that contradicted then probably in verse 39 when Jesus is going to remove the stone from the tomb and she says, wait, Lord, he stinks by now, you know, so I'm not sure that she was expecting him to raise him from the dead. I think what she's trying to say is, I know the right answer. Um, if you would have been here, things would have been different, and yet I know you're still God. I know that whatever the Father gives you, um, and, and Jesus makes this statement where he says, your brother will rise again. And she gives the correct Sunday school answer, right? She says, yes, I know he will rise again at the resurrection in the last day, right? She gets it word perfect. It would be like reciting our confessional statement, right? That you, you know the correct answer, and yet she doesn't truly understand what Jesus means when he says your brother will rise again. And in fact, Jesus wants to show her what he's talking about. He doesn't just want her to have faith in a resurrection Direction that's a future someday that she can't really wrap her mind around. He wants her to see the reality of the resurrection now. So look what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus wanted her to see that He's not talking about the resurrection someday, though that's included. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's talking about eternal death. And he wants her to catch this, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, someday, at some point, we'll have to examine just a little fuller what are these I am statements that Jesus has made several of by this point, and what is their meaning, but they had significant meaning. It would have been very impactful for her to hear these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is saying that the resurrection and the life was him. The resurrection and the life was standing in front of her. And Jesus wanted her to move her idea of the resurrection and her hope of the resurrection from this abstract thought in the future, and he wanted her to place it on this personal knowledge of who Jesus was. He wanted her to realize the significance of him being the resurrection and the life. Therefore, as we keep going next week into this account of the resurrection, uh, the, the significance is not so much on just the fact that Lazarus is raised from the dead. This miracle is wonderful for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but Jesus was not just trying to show them his power to raise Lazarus from the dead. He was trying to show them his power over all of life and all of the resurrections. He's saying, I am the resurrection. Right here, standing in front of you, the resurrection has come. It's not just this abstract thought in the future. Similar to the I am statement in, Mark, in John chapter 6. So remember, he's, he's 
threading together all these signs. And when Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the bread and the fishes, and then a few verses later, he says, I am the bread of life. What was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 about? It wasn't just bread and fish. It was Jesus saying, I am the bread. And whoever eats of me will never hunger and never thirst. And Jesus is here. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But it's not just about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's about the fact that the resurrection had come, right? He was there in the flesh and he had the power over death. What an incredible truth. And look, look, there's this, there's this uh, neat thought here that even uh, a pastoral thought to think about when we face death. What does Jesus do for Martha? How does he redirect her attention and focus? He puts it on himself, right? He, 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 he takes this grieving friend that he loves and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And even though he's going to raise her brother in just a little bit, he wants her to catch and realize Jesus is the hope of the resurrection. And, and even though she knew it, she had the correct words, she had the correct statement to say in a situation like this. She didn't yet know who Jesus was in the fullest sense of all that she needed to understand. And so Jesus says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, this is a better statement. It seems like she's understanding more of who the Messiah is, whether or not she recognizes that Lazarus is about to raise from the dead. I don't know whether or not she understands all that she needs to know. But here she's realizing Jesus is the one who came to bring the resurrection and the life. And so the application for us would be the same. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he was, the most important person in all of human history, and that he came to this earth and as we will look at next week, he was willing to call Lazarus out of the tomb, knowing that he himself, a short time later, would enter the tomb after being crucified. And he would be there under the powers of the grip of death and the enemy and darkness, and he would rise victorious, right? That he would be raised to new life. That his willingness to do that provided life for you and I. He is the resurrection and the life, not just for Lazarus, but for you and I. And that for any of us who would turn from our sins and place our faith and trust in Christ, he is the resurrection and the life. And we can have our sins forgiven and an eternal relationship with God. And that's what we celebrate at this table, that we come together as a body regularly to say, yes, it's Jesus, it's his broken body, it's his shed blood that provides forgiveness of sins. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more, right? And we know that and we love that and we treasure it because it's the hope that our resurrection our resurrection's hopes are founded in that, not in some abstract way in the future, but in a reality right here and right now. So we're going to celebrate this truth together as a body as we partake of the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful <clears throat> that in your sovereign plans, uh, you have the power over life and death. We're grateful that you uh, 
in such love for us are willing to work to show yourself to us. You're willing to work uh, to let us see your glory even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when it's not readily apparent and so we're just so grateful for that. Father, we thank you that the, the hope of the resurrection is not just an abstract reality in the future, but the resurrection has come. The resurrection died and the resurrection rose again. And this morning we celebrate and commemorate that thinking about this broken body and shed blood of Christ, the resurrection and the life and what he means for us. Encourage our hearts with this truth. I ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.